It's my great privilege to be here with you. I'd like to open with a word of prayer. The goal of this time, this morning, is to settle our hearts on who God is, his attributes. God is the most important being in the universe. And if you're anything like me, we can get often distracted by other things. And we can often get focused on ourselves where we become the priority in the universe and the most important being in the universe. So the goal of this time is to think about who God is, settle our hearts on his greatness, on his glory, on his majesty, and delight in God together. Would you pray with me? God, we are very small. We're in this church building um, in the state of Kentucky, in the state of America, on this planet, Earth, where there are literally almost an infinite amount of number of planets in the universe with stars innumerable. And yet, God, you hold them all in your hand. You are the mighty God of the universe. And we want to be struck afresh with a sense of your majesty and your greatness. Would you allow us to be in awe of who you are? Would you renew us afresh with your attributes? God, with your holiness, with your mercy, with your patience. We, we need to see these things in a greater way. So God, I ask you for help. I ask you for assistance. And we pray that Christ would be magnified and exalted. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if God is the most important being in the universe and that all things exist for his glory, every star, Every monarch butterfly, every volcano, every hurricane, everything exists for his glory, then it's critically important that you and I meditate on who he is and what he has done. That's what we want to do this morning from the book of Jonah. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be setting our hearts on who God is. So Jonah's at kind of the back end of your Old Testament. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. If you go to Micah, you've gone too far. It's a little bit before Micah. Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be reading from... Chapter 3, verse 1, down to chapter 4, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse 3. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne 
removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So this morning we're going to be considering uh, four things. First off, I want you to be encouraged that God is patient. I want you to be encouraged that God is patient. Secondly, I want you to respond, you and me, I want us to respond to God's word. Because God is holy. Be encouraged because God is patient. Respond to God's word because God is holy. Boldly proclaim the truth because God is powerful. And lastly, I want us to be merciful because God is merciful. So let's start by uh, talking about this idea of God's patience found in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. You can see it there in, the, in your copy of the scriptures. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So this isn't the first time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah previously in chapter 1, and he responded in a sinful way and fled from that word, fled from the presence of God. And there's a story about God bringing discipline into Jonah's life through the events that unfold where he ends up in a belly of a fish and he gets spit up onto ground where we find him now. He's, the word comes to him a second time. And I think this, is, this should encourage you if you're a Christian. This should encourage you in God's patience. You know that Jonah was a wretch. And Jonah was a mixed bag. And that's often how we are. We're often, um, we have ups and downs. We have difficult times where we're trying to discern what's most pleasing to God. And we want to run from God at different situations in our life. He fleed the presence of the Lord. And then you remember he's on the ship. And what does he tell the sailors? I'm a Hebrew and I fear God. So he's also a hypocrite because he's openly rebelling against God, but he says he fears God. And despite everything in the story, obeying God, you think of all the things that obeyed God. God appointed a fish, and it obeyed God and swallowed Jonah. In chapter 4, God appoints a plant, and it does what God says. He also appoints a worm, and it does what God says in chapter 4. God appoints a scorching east wind in chapter 4, and it does what he says. Everything in the story is being directed by God and doing what God says. 
And then God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no, I'd rather not. And that's how it is with us many times. But despite all this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is a patient God with his people. God is remarkably patient. God is stunningly patient. His patience is awe-inspiring, is it not? You think of all the ways that God could have spoken to Nineveh. What, what other ways could God use to speak to Nineveh? Perhaps he would write the message in the stars of the sky to proclaim his message to Nineveh. Perhaps God would write it in the clouds. Or maybe God would have ordained an angel to ordain this angel to go to Nineveh and speak similar to what he did to rescue Lot out of Sodom. But God chose to use someone who is very imperfect, someone who is very fickle, someone who is very weak. This shows the patience of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And so I want to encourage you in God's patience. Maybe you're someone who at one time had a ministry at a church. Maybe sometime you were devoted to God's work and you had some kind of fall. You had something in your life that set you back. And you're currently in this situation thinking, I'm washed up. I'm on the sidelines for the rest of my life now. I want you to know that's not how God operates. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And God is patient with his people. I know you remember this verse, Psalm 103. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust. So God is patient in his dealing with us and patient in dealing with Jonah. And I want you to be uh, encouraged. Perhaps you're a Christian here this morning and you just can never achieve the standard of Christianity that you've set for yourself. You're overly critical of yourself in the Christian walk. Maybe you should adopt this view of yourself that you're a growing Christian. Why do you have this expectation on yourself that you, have the, you should have this whole thing figured out by now? You, like me, if you're a Christian, are a growing Christian. You're not where you want to be, but you're not where you were. And God is patient with Jonah, and God is patient with us. One more point about this that I think we should consider together is the fact that the word of the Lord had to come to Jonah twice points forward to our need of a perfect prophet. There is a prophet coming that when he has God's word will proclaim it in complete and total obedience in every point and in every way. And it anticipates the coming of God's son Jesus into the world to be a perfect king to be a perfect prophet, to be a perfect priest. We read in our scripture reading where Jesus says, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said of himself, Jonah was something, but I'm the greater Jonah. I'm the greater prophet. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 says this, Long ago and in many ways God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken us through his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus is up there with three of his disciples. And Elijah and Moses appear, these great prophets from the Old Testament. 
And God said, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus is the unique God, truly God, truly man, prophet that we all need. And to see Jonah falling short of that should make our hearts long for the one who comes in perfect obedience, perfect, uh, perfect in every way. So be encouraged that God is patient this morning. Secondly, respond to God's word because God is holy. A uh, few years back, there was a hurricane coming up the coast of Florida. And everyone was informed of the hurricane, but not everyone responded. So the difference between the people who just heard and the people that heard and went to safety was how they responded to the message. So when we hear God's word, it's enough to hear it. That's good. But we need to respond to God's word. There needs to be something within your will, within your center of decision making, that is going to respond in a particular way to what God has spoken. And we see that in how Nineveh responds. Respond to God's word because God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, it means that God is sinless. And he has no wrinkle or spot. God is light and in him there is no darkness, not at all. But it means more than sinlessness, doesn't it? In Isaiah chapter 6, there's these angelic beings in heaven crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But those angelic beings are also sinless. But they're worshiping God for his, sin, for his holiness. So holiness has to do with something more than just sinlessness. The holiness of God has to do with the fact that he is utterly, completely, and totally unique. There is none like him. There is none holy like the Lord. God is a holy God. He's set apart. Listen to Exodus chapter 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? God is set apart in his holiness. God is not like anything that we know. God's holiness goes beyond it transcends our highest thoughts about a holy place or a holy person or a holy thing. God is holy to the infinite degree. And because he's holy, he's against all sin. You put the holy God of the universe together with sinful people, you get a, you get a, a, a repelling action like we can't even imagine. So God looks at Nineveh and their sin and he's not indifferent toward it. He's provoked by their sin. Let's look at the text. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2. God tells Jonah to call out against it. So he sends his prophet to call out against the sin of Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 4. What is the message that God sends to Nineveh? Because of their sin. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. I'm sending wrath and a whirlwind that is going to destroy your city unless you repent. Yet 40 days and Nineveh should be overturned. So just imagine with me, we're there. We're in Nineveh. We get the message. There's this man going through our city proclaiming this message. 
we hear the word, we're brought to a point of a decision. What are we going to do? Life and death hang in the balance of this decision. You have two options before you. You can fight against God as an enemy, or you can bow before God as a king. Which do you choose? Do you wave your white flag of surrender and acknowledge that he is the Lord, he is the one mighty to save? Or do you pick up your weapons and decide to fight against him? Thomas Watson once said, it's better to meet God with tears in your eyes than with weapons in your hands. It's better to meet God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit than to spend all the days of your life fighting against him, wrestling against him. He's a holy God, and he tells uh, Jonah to call out against it. And so I want us to respond to God's word because God is holy. And I want you to do some, I want to do you some eternal good this morning. And so let's consider our hearts right now. Has there ever been a time in your life that you've been awakened to the idea that you are a sinner before God? Not just that you commit sins, but that at the very core of who you are, you are a sinner. Has, have you ever been awakened to the realization that it's not God who needs to change, but it's you that needs to change. You need to, you need to change on the inside. That's what the decision Nineveh was faced with. They couldn't no longer think that it was God that needed to change. The message had come to them, and they had a decision to make that they personally needed to repent. Has there been a time in your life where you've had a profound deep, abiding understanding that you're fully deserving of God's righteous anger and wrath because of your sin? Has there been a moment that you've agreed with God that if God was just and good, if he were to cast me into hell this very moment, he would be just with that? That is what I deserve. I deserve punishment and wrath because of my sins. Have you had this encounter with the holy God? Um, have you come to the realization that things need to change in my life? I need to repent of this road that I'm on. That's what happened to Nineveh this day that we're reading about. They received the word, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And now they are brought to a point of decision. And how do they respond? Let's look at that together. They respond in belief, and in repentance, in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. How do they respond? They respond in belief and in repentance. Faith and repentance are like twin sisters of conversion. If you were to think about what is it to become a Christian, and you had a coin... One side of the coin would be belief and faith. The other side of the coin would be repentance. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. 
And you see that displayed here in the text from the Ninevites, don't you? Um, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. So these are two essential aspects of conversion, of being a Christian. And it's not only in this passage. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, you remember Jesus? He, um, uh, he's he's uh, at his baptism. From his baptism, he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And then he comes back and he's starting his earthly ministry. And this is what he says. Now, after Jesus, uh, sorry, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Both of those are together of what it means to be converted to Christ. If you just have belief, but there's no evidence of a changed life, a new way of living, a putting off of sin in your life, it's insufficient. If you just have a putting off of sin, a running from sin, but no faith and belief in the person and work of Christ, it's insufficient. There's got to be belief, faith, and repentance. Uh, I know you remember this from Acts 20. Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. And what does he say? Uh, Acts 20, verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying uh, to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Belief is personal trust in the person and work of Jesus. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of life. It involves a break from sin. It involves an acknowledgement that we've done wrong. It involves a sorrow and a grief over sin. And it involves a hatred and an abhorrence of the sin that we turn from it and run from it. This is what happened with Nineveh. And if uh, you're here this morning as someone who's exploring Christianity or someone who's an unbeliever and you're wondering, how can someone be right in God's sight? How can I go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God? This is the answer. You repent and believe. Make this conscious decision in your life that if I was to add together all of my sins on the world's greatest calculator and hit the equal button, what has it gotten me? It's gotten me death. It's gotten me misery. It's destroyed my life. Why don't I forsake it? What eternal benefit is my sin adding to the condition of my soul? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you respond with repentance and belief. You place your trust in the fact that Jesus lived that perfect life that you couldn't live, that none of us could live. He always obeyed the law at every point perfectly. He had a prostitute washing his feet with her hair, and he didn't have one sinful thought about her. He was in the temple as a 12-year-old boy, and he wasn't thinking about Xbox or PlayStation. He was worshiping God. So Jesus lived that life that we couldn't live. We've all, our righteousness has failed. 
we've sinned against God, this holy God that we're talking about. And we need his righteousness for us. We need his record, his life, the, the things that he obtained in his perfect obedience to be accredited to us. But not only did Jesus live the life that we need, he died the death that we couldn't die. Who among us could bear up under the wrath of Almighty God? Yet that's what Jesus did upon the cross. He took the wrath of God for his people on the cross. Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he died in his people's place for their sin. Now, if you're an unbeliever, think of every lie. Think of every moment of stealing. Uh, think of every night of drunkenness and every intense pride in your own heart that you've looked down on another person. If you place your trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and trust that he bore those things for you, you'll be justified in God's sight. You can have all your sins washed away. You can be whiter than snow in less than the time of a tick of a clock. You can be right before God. This is very great. Look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth. For he is God and there is no other. And so respond to God's word because God is holy. Respond to God's word because God is holy. So we've talked about I want you to be encouraged that God is patient. I want you and me to respond to God's word because God is holy. Thirdly, I want us to be boldly proclaiming the truth because God is all-powerful. Boldly proclaim the truth because God is all-powerful. Uh, have you noticed that when you look at chapter 3, uh, the word of God is central? Look in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Look in verse 3. It says, according to the word of God. So Jonah arise and went to Nineveh according to the word of God. Look with me in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. The whole narrative is centering upon God's word and its power to save. God is all-powerful, whether it's the power of magnetic attraction, whether it's the power uh, to hold the moon in its orbit around the earth, whether it's the power that God has to feed the sun with fuel to burn. God has all power. He has all power to accomplish all of his holy will. Jeremiah knew it. In the book of Jeremiah, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He tells God, nothing's too hard for you. God is all powerful, and his power is displayed in this incredible revival. You see in verse... Um, look, let's look at the king together in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. Do you see the progression? Do you see the power of God's word? I hope you do. Which president of a country today, what king of a country in all their pomp and in all their arrogance and in all their pride, 
would the word of God come to you and you see this kind of effect? The word of God has power to humble the proud. The word of God has power to humble uh, sinners. It humbles the mightiest king of the earth. God's word powerfully transforms people. It powerfully transforms cities. It powerfully transforms countries. Just think about this a minute with me. We're thinking about the word coming to the king, and he's getting off the throne. He's taking off his royal robes. He's getting down in the ashes. Okay. Imagine there was a Chinese Christian that traveled to the sin city of Las Vegas, Nevada, and is going through Las Vegas and starts to proclaim the gospel. In 40 days, Las Vegas will be overthrown. Repent and believe. And all the casinos begin shutting down. All these places of prostitution begin closing. The mayor of Las Vegas says, you know what? We're, we're going to proclaim a fast because we've, we've sinned against the God of the universe. And because of that, we deserve to die. We need to change our ways. We need to change our heart. And the city is utterly transformed. That's what's going on here in Nineveh. That level of power that level of transformation. The word of God is extremely powerful. Uh, perhaps you're like me and you're thinking, you know, it's, it's going to be 4th of July. You're thinking, I don't have belief that that could happen in America. Maybe your faith is small where you think America is too far gone for that kind of thing to happen here. Well, I just want to encourage you from the biography of George Whitfield. This is a quote from a man named uh, Arnold Dallimore. When he's talking about this, the Great Awakening that happened in England and uh, the condition of England at the time before the Great Awakening, he writes later on in the book, one in six houses was a place that was a gin house. So every one in six places was a place that was dedicated to producing gin, was the level of uh, alcohol addiction and alcohol abuse that was happening. This is how he opens up the chapter on moral, uh, spiritual and moral conditions in England before the revival. For the past 30 years, numerous evangelical people have been saying there can never be another revival. The times are too evil. Sin is now too rampant. We're in the midst of apostasy and the days of revival are gone forever. History of the 18th century revival entirely contradicts this view. It shows that true revival is the work of God, not man, of God who's not limited by circumstances or extent of human sin or the degree of mankind's unbelief. In the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was in the midst of such conditions, conditions remarkably similar to those of English-speaking world today, that God arose in a mighty exercise of his power, which, became, which began in the 18th century revival. So things in America are obviously bad. But God, is anything too hard for God? There's nothing saying that we have to watch America get darker and darker. And we can't pray for God to work a mighty revival in our midst. 
we can pray and we should trust God's power and we should boldly proclaim the truth in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. The antidote that pushes back against the darkness is you and your sphere of influence and the place that you are boldly proclaiming the truth. So let me ask uh, believers here today, are there family members or relationships that tempt you to doubt God's power? You share the gospel with them, they're not responding. You share the gospel with them again, they're not responding. And you're beginning to worry and doubt that God could ever save that person. I want to encourage you, continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. Don't give up. God's word has power. It's like a fire. It's like the rain that goes out and waters the plants. It's like a double-edged sword to cut to the bone and marrow. It's like the milk that helps the new grown, uh, newborn grow. What are the, what's the idea of all these metaphors about the word of God? It gets things done. It accomplishes its purpose. Perhaps you're, I know that some of you work together in factories. Are there people in your workplace that you've shared the gospel with, but there's such hard ground that seems like it would never change? I want to encourage you to go on boldly proclaiming the gospel. God has all the power that there is, and I think we'll be surprisingly, um, I think if we go on boldly proclaiming, we'll be surprisingly encouraged by what God does. So I want you to be, uh, I want you to be encouraged God is patient. I want you to be, uh, respond to God's word because God is holy. I want you to boldly proclaim because God is powerful. And finally, I want us to be merciful because God is merciful. What kind of people do we want to be amidst this, amidst this culture that we're in? We want to be a merciful people. You see that in verse uh, 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So there's a contrast happening between God who's rich in mercy and ready to show it to sinners and Jonah who's reluctant and doesn't want to share it. He's holding back. Jonah is not a pipe or a conduit through which the mercy of God runs. Jonah is a sponge that absorbs the mercy of God and just wants to keep it all to himself. Jonah worshipped at God's temple. He had been in God's very presence, but he's hesitant to share that with others. He doesn't want other people to experience what he's experienced. As one preacher said, Jonah received the mercy of God and sat on it. And we can be that way often too. When you think about different people that maybe of groups that in your heart you can't stand, you want to be away from, you don't want them to come near to you. What do you think about them receiving God's mercy? Will you be quick to show it? Will you be quick to tell them about the gospel? Tell them about the love of God? As Christians, we need to reflect God's mercy. And God is very merciful. Has, uh, has our pity for sinners grown cold? Has our compassion run dry? 
in Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus is teaching on the end times. And he says, lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. So one of the effects that an increase of lawlessness has in a nation is not that you're tempted to sin in the same ways. When a nation's lawlessness increased, the temptation for Christians is that your love grows cold. You're not as merciful as a person that you used to be. You're hardened on your inside. You become callous. You lose that compassion that once so incredibly marked your Christianity. We don't want to be that way. We want to reflect God's mercy to a lost and dying world. We can't leave the topic of mercy without speaking about Jesus. You remember him with that leper. He reached out and touched him, even though he didn't have to touch him to heal him. He showed him mercy. You remember the widow's son? She had lost her husband. Now her son had just died. Jesus went up to the casket and raised that son from the dead. You remember the cripple and the blind. You remember the needy and the lowly that Jesus had compassion on. And if you're here today outside of Jesus Christ and you don't know the Lord, I want you to know he's the same Jesus than he was then. If you come to him, he will have mercy on you. He will be gracious to you. He won't receive you with fire in his eyes. He'll receive you with compassion and with grace and with mercy as you come to him, broken over your sin, yet trusting in him for his salvation and his grace. Jesus is the embodiment of mercy. He's mercy incarnate. He's mercy with a capital M. And he's a mighty savior. So I want you to be encouraged because God is patient. I want you to respond to God's word because God is holy. I want us to boldly proclaim the truth because God is all powerful. And be merciful because God is merciful. Let's pray. God, you are just so great. Your son Jesus is a wonderful savior, a mighty God. He is everything that we need. I pray for the Christians, God, that you would allow us to be encouraged by your attributes as we think about who you are and what you've done in Christ. And for those that don't know you, I pray that for their eternal soul, God, that you would use your word to do them some good. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.